when we look at people who have that narcissistic-like behavior, or even the full-blown personality disorder, what creates the condition is what we call the narcissistic wound. There's some deep wounding, relational wounding that person has experienced in early childhood has created this intense sense of insecurity. And they're relating with the world in a way that's all about trying to feel more secure. On the show today, we have Adam Mason. He is the head of biblical counseling at First Baptist Houston. Ben, what would you add about Adam? I love Adam's wisdom. He's a deep well. He's very reflective. And whenever you ask him a question, he takes just a second to pause. Mm -hmm. And then he answers in the most profound ways. He does. So today, we wanted to throw questions at him that our listeners have been throwing at us and have a little bit of a Q&A with him. Yeah, so we read several emails that we've gotten from people, um, just word for word, just to have him answer the question. Because some of them are dangerous for a pastor to have answered. It was helpful to have a counselor Absolutely. answer. And let us just use this moment to say, once again, we we read every email that comes to president at lifeway.com, including the questions and the comments. So please keep sending us feedback about things you want to hear more, questions you have that we haven't answered, topics you feel like we haven't covered. We'd love to read those and get a sense of what the audience wants to hear. Last night, we were talking to Adam a little bit and we said, Adam, if you had a nickel for every time you've been asked this question... Um, and what that turned into is our very first question. So we'll just kind of take it away, but it's something that he has been asked a lot of times. This is one of my favorite questions that we've ever asked him. So practical. Welcome to the glass house. It is game day. Game time. Are you ready for game day? Always. We I have, love games. We have with us Adam Mason, who's one of our favorite people on the planet, uh, head of counseling at Houston's First. And Adam, what's your favorite game? I can tell you it's not Monopoly. Okay. <laughs> but if I had to choose what it was, I would say Trivial Pursuit. I would not be surprised by that answer because you seem to ha- have a lot of useless information floating around your brain about all kinds of things. It's not Should useless. <laughs> it's well, good stuff. Last night he was telling us all this stuff about Fort Worth, Texas. I'm like, how does somebody know this much about Fort Worth, Texas? I wish I knew that much stuff about the cities right. I live in. That's right. It's not useless. It made you look very Texas intelligent. Well, you do know that you never ask a man if he's from Texas, right? Why? Well, if he's from Texas, he'll tell you. But if he's not from Texas, don't embarrass him. (laughs) Very good. Lindley, what's your favorite game? Um, My favorite games are games that end quickly um, with a clear (laughs) winner. So I like games like Connect Four. I liked Go Fish. uh, With our kids, I like. um, I actually like Scattergories a lot. The word, the one, the word game. So I have several. I really like Pictionary. We were talking about this today. I do not like that game. I think it's so hilarious watching people try to draw. And they're normally horrible at Mm -hmm. drawing, as am I. Mm -hmm. But it's just fun to watch somebody that you've never seen try to draw a picture draw. This is why we don't have game day at our house very often. (laughs) Yeah, because we don't like the same kind of games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We actually all draw very well. Okay. There are those who can draw pictures and those who draw attention. Okay. Uh (laughs) Wow, Adam is on a roll Just going right at it. (laughs) Well... We wanted to bring Adam back on the show because we get a lot of uh, mail from our listeners asking us tough questions. And honestly, some of these questions, Adam, it's hard for a pastor to answer these because he's already in a ministry context and it it could be damaging to him to be honest about the answer. So 
Lindley and I pulled up some of these questions and we thought we'd fire them at you while we have you here in town in front of the microphone and just see what the Holy Spirit leads you to say mm-hmm. to these these folks who are out there dealing with these issues. So, Lindley, why don't you just go ahead and give them the first question? Are we making this into a game? Yes. Oh, we are making it into a game, which was the whole point of the intro. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> so, here's what we've done. Back you want to explain? That. You explain what we've done. No, you go ahead. Okay. So, our producer, Angie, has a timer and she... There it is. <laughs> she loves it. it. She's <laughs> a little timer happy today. Trigger happy. But when your time is up, she's going to time it for each question. She's going to ring the buzzer so that we move on to the next question so we can get to them all. Okay. Makes sense? Okay, so it's a game. All right. Okay. So when the time's up, or when I say something she doesn't like. Ding. 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 Okay. There it is. Okay. <laughs> there it is. All right, let's do it. First All right. one. So I'm just going to read what a listener sent in to us. Um, and so it said, my husband and I have had some great ministry experiences and some rough ones. I would love to hear advice about how to deal with unhealthy leadership and staff. We have loved the church, but at times we have worked with some really unhealthy people. They've been demanding results-based, mean, unkind, hurtful with words, and we have felt the need to take care of ourselves and our family and leave, especially when leadership or staff refuse to take a, to change, to take a break, or to go to counseling. So she says, we aren't perfect, and we are doing our inner work, our own inner work, but it's hard to make personal improvements when others you're working with are not. Mm-hmm. Great question. I do hear this frequently in mm-hmm. the counseling session. There's a couple of responses, a couple of points that I would make to that. First thing I would say is it's very important that we pay attention to our own God obsession versus self-obsession. That it's our understanding that a self-obsessed person is not going to lead somebody else into God obsession. So if I'm in a conflict with another person, whether it's on staff or in the congregation, I have to first say, why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling? You know, is what I'm feeling a righteous anger, or is there something within my flesh that has been stirred up because of this conflict? And I have to do business with the Lord first. Oftentimes, what I find is that something that someone else has done has stirred up my flesh. Something from my past has come back up, hmm. maybe a wound that hasn't healed, maybe a stronghold of flesh that's there has surfaced, and so that's what's causing the issue. And the appropriate godly response is I deal with my own struggle first. And once I know that I'm in a place of God obsession, then I can ask God, God, give me a vision for what this relationship is supposed to look like. After I'm there and I ask that question, then the second point comes up for me, which is a mantra that we use in the counseling center, is that you cannot have a godly, healthy relationship with an ungodly, unhealthy person. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have to adjust our expectation. If that person is walking in the flesh, and I have moved towards them out of what I'm sure is the strength of the Spirit. I know that I'm God-obsessed, I'm walking in the Spirit, and I've approached them out of that, and they reject that. They're not responding in a godly response. They're responding in an unhealthy, ungodly response. Then I have to adjust my expectation and know that it's very unlikely that I'm going to be able to have a healthy, godly relationship with that person. If I'm forced to be in relationship with them, I'm working with them, they're on church staff with me, then I have to determine the extent to which I'm willing to engage in an unhealthy relationship and make sure that I set strong, healthy boundaries there. Can you give that in a practical form? Like how, what is someone, what have they been praying through that you feel certain they're like God obsessed? Mm -hmm. They go to this leader, approach them, and they feel like it was not received. Can you just put that into kind of more practical terms as far as a situation maybe? 
Sure. Let's say that um, I have gone with a staff member uh, to talk with them about a conference and I'm wanting to partner. So we'll just see you as an experience for me. So let's say that uh, as a Christian counselor, I'm, I'm the Minister of Counseling Services at Houston's First, that I'm wanting to sponsor a conference on teenage suicide. So I go to our next-gen minister and say, hey, the Counseling Center's got these resources on adolescent suicide. We'd like to partner with you in bringing a guest speaker on board. And they say, sure, we're happy to do that. You know, um, yeah, Give us more details about what that looks like. And now Doug Bischoff is our next-gen minister, wonderful godly man, would never do this. Mm-hmm. So this is purely for illustration. Let's say that Doug goes to the pastor and says, I can't believe that Adam's stepping over into my turf. Okay. This should be a conference that I'm leading. My staff and I have already been talking about this. He didn't check with us. He just went ahead and is moving forward with this. You know why we do that? I get a call from the pastor that says, why are you stepping into Doug's turf? And my flesh immediately rises up because I'm feeling falsely accused. And part of my own woundedness is I have this high need to feel competent, this high need to be professional, to come across as I know what I'm doing, and you know when I make a mistake, that's hard enough to own. But when I'm being falsely accused, mm. man, that becomes a real battle for me. So my initial response is going to be to reach out to Doug, to feel the sense of betrayal, to attack him. But I have to realize that's my garbage that's coming out. Mm. So I've got to deal with that sense of betrayal that comes from he he just destroyed my appearance of competence. Uh, now I've looked mm. bad to my pastor. Okay? So I deal with that. I struggle with that. God, you know, the the whole point of this is to reach families and adolescents, that there's an epidemic of adolescent suicide. Mm-hmm. And he's in agreement that we need to have that. It doesn't matter which one of us leads that. What matters is that we get the message out. And so I'm going to see this as Satan stepping in, trying to prevent something good from happening. And it's not about me or my competence or my success or about what the pastor thinks about me. If he makes a decision about me on an isolated incidence, you know, that's an ungodly response. Mm -hmm. So I've got to trust you that you brought me here, that you're going to protect my reputation. And so I'm going to go to Doug and say, Doug, I'm sorry. I did not mean for that to come across in an offensive way. The primary goal for me is that this gets done. What role do you want me to play? Do you want to take the lead? Do you want me to take the lead? Mm-hmm. You know, and try to work that out and get to that conclusion. Now, if, if he responds back in a negative way, back in the flesh, mm-hmm. then I'm going to say, you know what? I give this to you. Mm. I bequeath this to you. You take the ball and run with it. My staff is here. We'll support you in whatever way you feel like is necessary. But I feel like this is something that we're not going to be able to, to partner on. I feel like you've got to take the lead on it. And I step back. Hmm. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Now, that would be a practical example. Does that make sense? That's great. Yeah. Oh, and we're on to the next question, so that was perfect timing. Uh, Someone writes this, I'd love to hear a podcast on leaving well, especially when you're not the senior pastor and leaving due to challenges with the senior pastor. Dealing with having to explain why you're leaving while maintaining the church's respect for the senior pastor can be a sticky issue. Mm Mm-hmm. It feels like you're forced to lie to your friends and over-spiritualize. God is calling us versus we can't afford to feed our family or we're being forced out to defend our reputation. Mm. What do you say to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Usually when I get that question, it's too late. (laughs) The person's already left and they've already done what it was that they were going to do and Mm. they're experiencing 
consequences of that. So I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to speak to that before it happens. So again, I would have to go back to the walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. If I'm struggling with being able to respect my pastor, that's a difficult thing to do. If you're working underneath somebody, whoever your direct report is, uh, and that direct report you're struggling to respect, that's that's a difficult challenge in ministry. So the first question has to be, why am I having a difficult time respecting that person? What is going on within me? What What is that triggering? Is that a godly self-righteousness or godly righteousness, excuse me, godly anger? Or is that a self-righteousness? Is that a fleshly response and to take care of myself first and to be able to say that is God using this moment to move me to another church because I'm not where he wants me to be? Is there a difference in values between the pastor and I? Is there a different in vision, difference in vision? What's, what's at the root of this? And then when I leave, to be able to say to people something honestly, you know, I reached a point in my spiritual journey where I didn't feel like I could grow anymore here. I felt that because of who I am and the experiences that I've had, I reached a point that I felt stagnant. I felt like I couldn't move on and that God was ready for me to move to another place to continue to grow because I couldn't heal, I couldn't grow in the areas that needed to be grown anymore. That's good. Is it Okay, I want to flip that question just a little bit. I think sometimes we over-spiritualize leaving Mm -hmm. because we, you know, maybe aren't getting our way, our church is difficult, all that stuff. And so, do you have people come into you that say, well, God's calling us to leave versus it it really just being that God's kind of disciplining them through the Mm -hmm. church and they're running away versus actually being called away? No, absolutely. When someone comes to me and, and says to me, we're feeling called to leave, I always ask them to unpack that with me. Okay. What are the circumstances? What's the call? You know, and and we'll ask them that question directly. It sounds to me more that you're running away from something than you're running to something. Mm-hmm. And when God calls us, we're always running to something, mm-hmm. not running away from something. Yeah. That's good. We had a lady who said, can you do an episode about navigating relationships with other staff families, having to put on a united front when you don't always like, agree, or enjoy each other's company? Mm. Also... When kids are involved and expected to be friends with the other staff kids, but they're very different. Mm. What would you say to that? That's a that's a hard question for a pastor to answer because his congregation is going to think. His, Who's he talking about? His kids don't <laughs> like the worship pastor's kids, you know, or whatever. Right. I have never thought that my community, my family's community, would be the other staff members. That's not been an expectation because ministerial life is so transitory, mm. right? And in a church like Houston's First, which is a commuter church, we live all over town. The guy that is the second in command at the counseling center, he and I live an hour and a half apart, and we're both on the outskirts of Houston. And that's an hour and a half with no traffic, mm. right? But it's not feasible for us to get together and to connect. We need to have community, uh, but the best godly community is organic community. It just happens. You have a connection with people. You have a connection that's there. Mm-hmm. And to, to follow that frequently is not staff members um, because the, the staff person will come home. They'll debrief to their spouse what's going at the church. Children kind of hear that, and that influences their opinion. Most of the stuff that we talk about is negative. 
Mm-hmm. It's by nature mm-hmm. of human beings. And so the spouse and the children get a more negative perception that's there. Why would they want to be friends from that perspective? So it's important that we foster community as a couple, community as a family. I don't think it's important that we foster community as a staff family. I think you need to have community as staff. Yes. But I don't necessarily think that it, it extends. Now, if for some reason um, there's a conflict among the staff family, maybe they're in LBS together and there's a conflict and they're getting along, I would go back to my earlier answer about you start with, am I self-obsessed or my kids self-obsessed? And I started teaching my children about self-obsession early on in life, telling them that we're all tempted and when you're tempted, if you're self-obsessed, you're going to fall to temptation. But if you're God-obsessed, then you'll be able to withstand temptation. And so when you're tempted, it's too late to start feeding the Spirit. Hmm. You have to feed the Spirit in advance from that perspective. And so to be able to teach them concepts like if you're walking in the Spirit and they're walking in the flesh, that's just going to be an inherent conflict there because it's just spiritual warfare. I feel conflicted. Okay. Because I feel like there are situations in a church where perhaps me and the women's minister, whoop, director of women's, let me clarify the terminology there. (laughs) Director of women's ministry? (laughs) Director of women's ministry. Um, What if she and I get along really well? We have kids kind of the same age. She really continues to push, you know, we need to get our families together. We need to get our families together. But I know that my kids don't enjoy spending time with her kids. You cannot tell someone, actually, you know what? My kids don't enjoy your kids. Like, how <laughs> do you how do you handle that without creating a rift on the staff? Because there's only so many times you can say, oh, man, you know, let's work it out on the calendar. And then kind of walking away pretending like we're not going to work it out on the calendar. So, I mean, how do you do it in, in that form when you're working on staff with someone? Sure. We have to remember that what's an organic connection for us is not an automatic organic connection for our children. Mm. And we can't mandate who our children are friends with. Our children's community needs to come from organic activities there. And we're much better served seeing who our kids are drawn with and seeking to become friends with those children's parents than asking our kids to become friends with the children of our friends. Mm. Wait, Angie. (laughs) (laughs) But that doesn't uh, that doesn't help me yet. Because so, what do I say to her? Mm-hmm. Like, what I mean, how do you say that to her? Well, I heard a podcast recently. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and that person said that we need to focus on our friendship and not worry about our families right now. Okay, okay. So, just you would say get together with her, but mm-hmm. leave the kids out of it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, for this moment. Okay. When Adam said he had no expectations on his family to um, be in community with other staff families, I really felt like I was grateful he said that. I felt like he um, probably let some people off the hook. And I think that's actually a needed statement to be said. I, I agree. I mean, I I had a hard time with that statement because I've always tried to put a lot of expectations on staff relationships. Mm-hmm. Because I, I want us all to be best friends and love each other's kids and show up at ball games and like have that like family feel at work, mm-hmm. which is really 
like like he said, there's an hour and a half from he and one other staff member. It's just not practical. Yeah. So it's not that this person isn't wonderful and in another time, another place, we might be better friends. It's just the circumstances and seasons of life are not allowing that. I have several thoughts to that. I think in one hand, it's um, I think it's great to have, if your families connect on staff, I think that's fantastic. Um, and I think that's a huge blessing and it should be celebrated. I also think it could be lonely. So I just was talking to a couple that he has been an executive pastor at several churches and the minute they leave, they said it's been hard because it's almost like crickets. Like you just don't hear from people anymore. And so if all of your community is within the church, when you leave, it's super difficult. I mean, because there's typically different stories that are being circulated um, and no one really knows what's happening. And so like, I just know for us personally, the people that we are still keeping in contact with from Colorado were not on our church staff. Like it was very important to us that our community were the people in our community, like in on our street um, in our neighborhood, just that had no, they did not care who we were and what we did. We just had kids that were the same age and we would sit on the street and, you know, watch them play baseball or whatever. It seems like a wiser investment of your energy mm-hmm. to put time into those relationships that aren't bound to your work mm-hmm. because right. work can change. Right. Uh, and yet having a good relationship with your coworkers is also a piece of that. So I think there's a balance there. Of I want to be close to the people I work with. I want them to know that I care about them. But at the same time, I'm not putting all my eggs in that basket. And we've talked about that even for you here in that, I mean, when your job and pastoring, it takes up almost all of your time. And so it's very hard to develop friendships outside of the church or like for you at Lifeway, but they can't be your only source of friendship. Right. Because then if we leave, you know, I'm starting over. They have a new leader that they have to come in and honor and be respectful to. And so, you know, they feel split between loyalties of, well, we love Ben, but we have to, we need to love the new president or yes, whatever. So, I mean, I just think that what he said is so true, like having community elsewhere. Uh, Adam, I want to ask you a question about something you've shared before, and I want to ask you to unpack it. Um, You talk about how uh, we can view people as resources or companions. Uh, We can view people as tools to get what we want or friends for the journey. It's been really convicting to me to think through that. I'm still working through it. How, How do you describe that to people in ministry, like the challenge of that? Okay. Beyond what you just did? Yes. I mean, how does that, how do you see that playing itself out in staff relationships or in how staff people treat church members? Okay. The, the underlying principle there is what I call the journey destination or the journey mentality versus the destination mentality that we look at life, either as a journey or at a destination. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Christian religion, the Christian religion is the only religion in the world that, that I'm aware of that says, once you enter that religion, in our language, once you become saved, then your destination is taken care of. So life is no longer about the destination. Once saved, always saved, one of our foundational beliefs. We know that we're going to heaven. So life then becomes about the journey. Every other religion is a philosophy that says, once I join that, I'm agreeing with a set of precepts that if I do it well enough, long enough, and whoever's in charge is in a good mood on the day that I die, I might get to someplace better. 
So that's an inherent destination mentality. I'm trying to get to a better destination than where I am now. When you live life in a journey mentality, then the people that I'm with are traveling companions. They're people that I am to enjoy this journey with. I can share with them part of my journey. They can share with me part of theirs. If I'm struggling carrying my backpack, they might help me. If they're struggling carrying theirs, I can help them. It's a cooperative, a collaborative effort. More often than not, Christians are operating from a non-Christian worldview. They're operating from a destination mentality, and they feel like that they need to get to a better stage of life than what they're at now, however they want to define that. A better job, a better relationship with their spouse, a better relationship with their children, more friends, a nicer house, better retirement, better health. So they're pursuing that as a destination, we would say as an idol, but they're pursuing that as a destination. And when you have that destination mindset, then everybody that's in your life is either an obstacle that stands in the way of you getting to where you want to go, or they're a, they are a resource that you're to use up to get where you're headed. A very ungodly way of viewing relationships from that perspective. And so as I'm looking at that relationship struggle when individuals come to my office, that's one of the first things I'm looking for. Are they walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit? Are they walking with a journey mentality or with a destination mentality? And we have this kind of formula mindset, A plus B equals C, that if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, then C, I'm going to get the consequence that I want. And if I'm doing what I need to be doing and I'm not getting the consequence that I want, then B, I blame. Right? A are the actions I take. C are the consequences I'm trying to get. B is I blame because my actions are getting what I want. I blame my wife. I blame God. I blame my boss. I blame my worker, my coworkers. Right? Blame that. And what God says is it's not an A plus B equals C formula. Matter of fact, there's not really a formula at all. Therefore, we're going to graph it out. We're just going to write B. And the B stands for? People? <laughs> no, no. The B stands for, I don't know, I'm, I'm confused. No? Lindley, do you have an answer to that? <laughs> you guys have spent a lot of time with me. What does the B stand for? I don't know. B. B-E. Oh, to be. Oh. Yeah, who be, you are. Be the person God created you to be. Be obedient to be the person God created you to be, and he'll take care of the outcome. I see. So I think about that in terms of just in practical church terms. There's a capital funds campaign coming up. Mm -hmm. And man, we, I just haven't done a great job raising money in the past. And man, I really, I'm really feeling the pressure. Mm -hmm. And so we've hired a consultant and he's told me that I really need to get our top givers in a room. Mm Mm-hmm. And challenge them because they have the means to do it, to make the first initial gift. Mm-hmm. And just how this works, Adam, I've seen this. Like, all of a sudden, I start looking around the room on a Sunday, and I'm seeing those people stand out to me. That what, what if I could have a really good personal interaction with them before they come to that meeting? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that make it less obvious that I'm really just wanting them to give a big gift to the church? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so whether it's that or whether it's some kind of number that you're trying to hit for Easter or whether it's how many baptisms you get or how many groups you're trying to start to hit a, whenever we have like a man-made goal of something we're trying to hit, then it becomes for me at least a temptation to use people mm-hmm. and to be upset with them mm-hmm. if they don't help me get there. Yeah. Uh, and ministry can really mess with your motives. 
sure. if you're not like searching your heart about it. Yeah, and that's where we bring the worldly strategy into the church, right? And say, there's a reason why that's a strategy. You know, it's, it's a logical way of thinking, you know, that we want people to lead, people to set the path, you know, for crusades. And I'm speaking of the old Christian crusades, yes. right? You would train the people who are the prayer partners. And when you say you're thinking about accepting Christ, make your way down to the front and all the people who are the, the decision counselors people. walk down to the front. And so the people who want to walk down to the front and give their life to Christ feel less intimidated because other people are doing it, right? So it's a standard technique, standard strategy that, that we've used for years in the church. But to stop it and say, okay, let me take that strategy, and instead of that being the self-obsessed strategy of trying to accomplish what I want, let me approach that from a God-obsessed perspective instead. To say to God, God, the strategy has pointed this out, and I don't feel good about this. I don't feel good about having an artificial relationship with someone Hmm. because of their financial means. That seems inauthentic to me. So I'm going to take these 15 people and I'm going to call them up and say, can I have a conversation with you? So we're meeting with this consultant that the church wants to enter into a fundraising campaign. And they told me that I need to pick out people who have financial wealth and approach them. And I feel bad about that. You and I haven't had a relationship before then. And for me to come before you and say, hey, you know, listen, I'd like you to, that doesn't feel good to me. Dad, I don't know how to overcome that. Would you be willing to pray with me that God can resolve that? And let me ask your wisdom about how you think I should move forward. Yeah. And I have a meeting with each one of those people. Yeah, that's good. I like that answer a lot. Lindley, the bell ring. Bell ring. went over. Yes. Are you ready for the next question? I have a question. Okay. I think in modern day language, we misuse terms. Okay. I know, I mean, especially when it comes to like mental health or diagnosing people or assuming that somebody has a diagnosis. I even, I'm thinking, the reason I thought of this question is that as Ben and I listened to the podcast series, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, one of the intro words was just talking about narcissism. Can you explain that term from a, from your counseling perspective, like what defines someone as a narcissist? And the reason I'm asking is that I think we get a lot of email about this in that sometimes pastors who do suck up a lot of energy get kind of deemed like, well, they're a narcissist or they have to always be on the stage or they always have to be the one leading it. Is that true or not? Like, I just would love to hear a little more about your opinion on that. Yeah. Great question. According to the clinical research, it's, it's a small percentage of people that meet the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. So if we're looking at it in the clinical sense, it's not near as widespread uh, as the pop culture would have us to believe. Narcissistic tendencies are there because in reality, all of us Mm -hmm. are narcissistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, That could be another term for self-obsession. Right. There are distinct differences between the two, important differences between the two. But there are enough similarities that we can accept that uh, to have a certain amount of narcissism. In addition... When we look at people who have that narcissistic-like behavior or even the full-blown personality disorder, what creates the condition is what we call the narcissistic wound. There's some deep wounding, relational wounding that person has experienced in early childhood that's created this 
intense sense of insecurity. And they're relating with the world in a way that's all about trying to feel more secure. In particular, manifestation and narcissism is more of a grandiose sort of behavior. Uh, they take this uh, early childhood egocentrism, mm. the ability to see things um, only as they relate to you, and that becomes their primary operating strategy. In other words, when we're young and in children, all we think about is what I want, mm-hmm. right? Most of us grow out of that. Mm. Someone who is on the narcissistic scale doesn't grow out of that. And they literally can't see it in this instance, would not be able to see it from Lindley's point of view. Hmm. They could only see it from their point of view. And they're saying, you know, I would like to go here for dinner. I don't understand why Lindley wouldn't want to go there for dinner. Hmm. Yeah, I know that she likes to eat good food. You know, I, I know that she likes to go out to eat. I just don't understand why she wouldn't want to go there. I can't conceive that you would think of it differently than I think of it. Hmm. That would be along the narcissistic scale from that perspective. And people who have that deep wounding have to think that everybody else thinks just the way I do. Because if you think differently than I do, then I must be wrong. Mm. Let's say, and therefore, if you have an opinion that's different from mine, I've got to convince you that your opinion is wrong. Mm. It's got to match mine. The other important criteria that would follow narcissism would be a lack of empathy. They can have compassion gee, if I was in your shoes, that would really be painful. I would really feel that versus empathy, which is understanding what I know about Lindley and understanding what I know about her life and her background while being in that situation was really hard. That's the difference between empathy and compassion. And they don't have that ability because, again, it means being able to think through somebody else's point of view, and they're not capable of doing that. The other component, and this really leads us more to the clinical diagnosis of narcissism, is his ability to rewrite history. Uh, and in narcissists, there's something that happens in the brain that after an event, within that first 12 to 24-hour period, they have their mind has rewritten that event to where they're either the hero or the victim of what happened. And when they recall that event, it's not something they created, it's the way they remember it. And so one of the treatment interventions that we do is we ask them to have a reality tester that becomes a part of her life to help them to see um, differently. That No, you're remembering it this way, but I remember it differently. And to have the humility mm-hmm. to say, I don't remember things all the time exactly the way they happened. So we look at the pastors. I would say a lot of the pastors that I see in counseling are definitely wounded. Um. Sometimes it's what we would call that narcissistic wound. Sometimes it's more of what we would call an attachment wound, which would be a specific hurt by a primary attachment figure, a mom or a dad. And there's more of a performance pressure trying to please somebody, Mm -hmm. along with a sense of shame, feeling there's something defective about me. That's more of a specific versus the generalized insecurity of a narcissist. So I see both categories um, it seems like we've seen a shift towards more attachment than the narcissistic wound here recently, but I think it's because our understanding of attachment has strengthened. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
So only I want to talk about this narcissism tendencies thing because it actually he said in some ways we're all narcissistic mm-hmm. because we are all self selfish sinners. I've actually been doing something different with my morning routine and it makes me feel godlier, but it's different than what I've been used to. So I was for a period of time, as you know, getting up really early and reading and reflecting and journaling and reading scripture. And I was finding it to be like a time of a lot of just self-obsession, like things I'm not good at, things I need to be praying about, things I need to be improving in my life, spiritual disciplines I'm not practicing. And then recently I've like relaxed a little. I've been sleeping later, starting the day off with exercise or a walk. Like today I went for a walk and just prayed. And it honestly makes me feel less obsessed with myself when I'm not so focused on growing myself. And I just wonder what you thought about that in terms of, you know, we can sometimes become self-obsessed even in our spiritual disciplines. Mm-hmm. It's all about me. It's all about me getting better for Jesus instead of really using this time in, with the Lord to better serve the other people around me. Yeah. Uh, and I think you've been concerned about that with me. Like we've had conversations about that with me. Like you're like, how much more of that do you need? <laughs> Gosh, yeah. Because I'm a very contemplative person, and I can spend hours doing that. Thinking about yourself? Yes. (laughs) I'm serious. I love to think about myself. I mean, honestly, (laughs) that's the the beauty for me in that, and I've said this to the audience before, I I do feel like I'm pretty um, street smart. I'm not as book smart as you are. And so, I mean, even at 42, I'm still reading through the Bible, like going through Bible reading plans every day. Um, reading passages that I've read probably 10 times before, still trying to understand what they mean. And so in a way, I don't say this like um, self-deprecating. I don't know if that's even the right word, but in a way, I'm glad that I'm not super intelligent like you in, in regards to just memory and understanding because I just, I almost read it fresh every time. And I mean, I'm reading it to figure out what is God saying here? Well, and what's, what's hard for every personality type like mine is I love reading and reflecting and thinking so much that that can become uh, just this growing solitude that isolates people from me. Mm-hmm. So I do remember this one time when I was a pastor, uh, when our worship pastor, Travis Cottrell, who's very people oriented, mm-hmm. he came into my office and butted in like he always did and saw that I was reading yet another book. And he said to me, you need to stop reading so many books and start hanging out with more people. <laughs> and even though he was saying it in jest, like there was something about the way he said it that felt like really convicting to me. Mm-hmm. Because there is a sense which the Bible says the reading of many books makes us weary. So there is this limit on how much introspection, how much focus on self-growth we should allow versus really using my time to serve other people and serve the kingdom. I feel like we're talking about Mary and Martha. Are we? I don't know. I'm not the smart one. (laughs) Can we talk about the pastor's wife for a minute? This is a big topic on this show. A lot of questions always come about the pastor's wife. And let me give you a recent experience we've had that I would love for you to speak to. We were going to do this really special video for our uh, luncheon, our breakfast at the SBC for pastor's wives. And we were going to shoot this video that honors all that a pastor's wife does in the life of the church that nobody sees, all the behind the scenes work, the sacrifices. But when we read the script, Adam, it actually felt like it was going to have a counter effect in that 
we were going to cast this video with a certain woman who looks a certain way, who behaves a certain way, and we were only going to perpetuate this idea that there's a certain kind of pastor's wife that's a pastor's wife. And so, one of the things that we're noticing about ministry is just the need to recognize the pastor's wife in many forms. So, why do, you, why do you feel like so many pastor's wives are struggling with this idea that I wasn't cut out for this? This is not what I was supposed to do. My husband felt called to this. I don't fit here. Why is that so prevalent? Great question. Uh, I'm part of a research team that's been studying pastoral attrition since 2014. And as a part of the research, we looked at the pastor's family and the connection that was going on there. Obviously, if a pastor's family is in crisis, they typically struggle to maintain their job in ministry and oftentimes will leave ministry. Um, so we looked at the basis or the the foundation of the ministry of marriage within the ministry and those components. And as we talked with the wives, something surfaced to me that said that the the conflict was because the wife is not meeting the expectations of the church. Because the wife is not meeting the expectations of the church, the pastor's getting in trouble with the church, and ultimately that leads to either a split between the pastor and his wife or between mm-hmm. the pastor and the church. So the wife feels like the church loves my husband, doesn't love me. Right, because I'm not meeting the expectations. And so the, the sense of expectations seem to me to be somewhat universal. So we've actually contracted with an expert in the field of occupational studies. And I offered the hypothesis that a pastor's wife should qualify as an occupation mm-hmm. because of the universality of the expectation. So we've done our initial study. And the initial study proves my hypothesis. Now, our sample size isn't large enough to release a study as, as an authentic study, so we're currently in the process of recruiting more pastor spouses to take it. But what we're seeing is that there are a set of expectations of the pastor spouse that are universal and seem to be rooted in a 1950s understanding of marriage. <laughs> um. Excuse me. (laughs) And here goes the podcast, literally. Okay. Um, When you said the pastor's wife should be an occupation, I take occupation as in a paid position. Mm -hmm. That is like, goes against everything that I think Southern Baptists, I think at this point, believe that the the wife, this pastor's wife should be paid. Like it it comes across as a two for one. Like you, we're so glad that we have your pastor, your husband, and um, we need you to lead X, Y, and Z. Um, and so are you saying that you guys are looking into the fact that as an occupation, she would be paid? No. Oh, okay. Still We're a volunteer. Si- <laughs> Still a volunteer. We're simply saying that the expectations are so universal, they would actually fit the Dictionary of Occupational Titles, our official Bible of Occupations, their definition of a career or of an occupation. And so if we took those and standardized those, they would meet the requirement. All the elements there are present. And that's what our occupational experts validated. That's true. Um, So last night we had a conversation with you privately about the difference of unfairness and injustice. Wait, Mm -hmm. injustice. Right. And so can you kind of explain that? Because this for me me feels like it's an injustice in a way, sometimes with pastor's wives. Mm -hmm. 
Well, to clarify, let's talk about the difference between Please. fairness and justice yeah, first. That. Okay, so fairness is not a biblical principle. Fairness is a subjective sense that things are even. And because it's subjective, there's no measure of that. Think about Christmas time with your kids. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Do your kids think that the distribution of Christmas gifts is fair? I remember when our children were younger, it was they all had the same number of right. gifts. Right. But when they were younger than that, it was the same size, mm-hmm. right? right? And then it was the same number, and then as they get older, the same dollar value. Monetary, yes. Right. Because otherwise, it would be, well, that's not fair, fair yeah. from that perspective. And so, fairness pervades our society. It's not a biblical principle. It's subjective. And the outcome is that leads to a sense of entitlement. On the other hand, the biblical principle is justice. Justice is objective. You know, the law is, the speed limit's 55. Yeah. You break it, you get a ticket. And if you go over 55, you could get a ticket. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, in my state of Texas, since the speed limit's 55, most people are going to drive 62 (laughs) because they're going to think the functional speed limit Mm -hmm. is 62. I can drive that fast without getting stopped. But Mm -hmm. you can get a ticket at 60, and you still have to pay it, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's an objective standard that's there for justice. Well, whereas fairness leads to a sense of entitlement, justice leads you to understand your need for grace and mercy. So justice sets you up for a relationship with God. Fairness creates enmity because you have the sense of entitlement that can create hardship or a difficulty between you and God because God's not giving you what you think that you need. So I throw out fairness as a measure of what mm-hmm. we're talking about. So let's look at justice. Well, the Bible says, pay a workman worthy of their hire. So if you have somebody that's doing an occupation within a church, they should be paid based on the basis of what they're doing. Now, if they come to you and they've declared, hey, I'm a volunteer, I have a job where I make money, I want to give my time to this, then that's fine. Mm -hmm. They still need to be recognized and appreciated because the Bible says you are to recognize and appreciate the work of of individuals that are there. But if they're... if they're willing to step up and fulfill a role that someone else is not willing to pay. And they're doing this and they're not working. They don't have a, the just thing is that they're paid worthy of their heart. And so many churches, because of this commitment to strategy, and I might be crossing some lines here, try to get volunteers to do as much as possible so they don't have to pay people. I think that's abuse of your people. Hmm. You're much more willing to hire a consultant to come in and tell us how to do something than we are to pay people for certain positions who are contributing just as much from that. So because of the study you guys are doing, one of the things that could benefit churches is to recognize that we are really not hiring one person. We're hiring two. Right. And if we're going to expect her to do these things above and beyond what she may be thinking we need to be prepared to have that conversation with her. Mm-hmm. My goal is that we're going to produce a document that we can put in the hands of every church, every pastor search committee. When you sit down with a person, a candidate that you're interviewing, you're able to say, this is what the general expectations of a pastor spouse are. We don't expect these things, uh, but we're going to add some things to the list. This is what our church expects. Is this something that meets your wife's strengths, your wife's abilities, Could we talk with your wife about her ability and willingness to do these things? And 
and to clarify that from the very beginning, so there's not this unmet expectation later on that sabotages the relationship. Mm-hmm. It needs to be on the table from the very beginning. And then be able to say, this is the compensation for that. This is what we expect for that. Yeah. And her to have the freedom to say, I actually have a occupation outside of this. And so I, 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 I am not going to be able to be present. And that has to be okay, too. Absolutely. You know? I mean, it just has to be discussed in the very beginning right. and negotiated. Proactive. Yeah. Well, okay. And to put this in really practical terms, what, what a lot of search teams do with new pastors is they interview the pastor several times and they have him come and preach and then they meet the family. Mm-hmm. So she's the afterthought. Like she, it's, it's as, long as, as long as she's put her blessing on her husband being part of the process, mm-hmm. they assume mm-hmm. she's going to be okay stepping up into all these expectations yeah. with no pay. Mm-hmm. That's good. All right. I think that was it. I think we're over our time now. Okay. Adam, thanks so much for coming. You were here today with our Lifeway team. You poured into all of us. And now for this podcast, you're pouring into our listeners who sent in these questions, in addition to a couple of the only I had. So thanks for doing that. We love being with you. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. The Glass House is a production of Lifeway, produced and edited by Angie Elkins, sound engineering by Dale Sandberg, original music by Robert Elkins, photography by Rebecca McVeigh, and artwork by Heather Brzezinski. We are your hosts, Ben and Lindley Mandrell. Thanks for listening.